Welcome back to Mark's Madness. Welcome back. We're doing it again. Doing it uh, again. As is tradition, this is the second recording of the of the session, which isn't really a tradition because we don't really get to do that all that often these days. But that being said, that it's means an old be- tradition. It's hard getting it's a, back. It's hard to get back. Uh, that being said, this is Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. My name is Nathan. My name's David. And we will be taking you through Black Reconstruction with no current events this week because we just did them. So hopefully we can pick up some speed and work our way towards the end of this book. That being said, we are starting on page 684 at the last paragraph at the bottom. Four states in 1874 remained under the Reconstruction governments, Louisiana, Mississippi, South Carolina, and Florida. It is said the consultations among white leaders took place throughout the South, and that in May 1874, 40 men assembled on Magazine Street, New Orleans, to arrange for the final drive. They represented all of the secret organizations. They consulted during May and June, and in July, the White League was organized under five comparatively unknown leaders who were chosen agents for the secret combination in less than 60 days after the formation of the New Orleans Central of the White League. It spread to the furthest parts of the state, had before the end of the year 40,000 members, and was extending in all directions through the South. In Mississippi, the White League began organized work in 1874. Seven organized armed groups were formed in Vicksburg to control the city election. The charge here was extravagance in building schoolhouses and too many, hard N-word, in office. Armed companies paroled the city and yet patrolled the city, and yet there was perfect order at the polls. Voters were thus intimidated and kept at home while in the surrounding counties. Some 200 Negroes were killed. At Clinton in 1875, another blow was struck when a mass meeting and barbecue was being held by the colored people. 500 armed white men assembled, food and wagons were destroyed, mules and horses stolen, hundreds of Negro homes searched, and fugitives driven away. Grant wrote to the state, to the Senate in January 13, 1875, regarding the condition of Louisiana. He said, on the 13th of April, 1873, a butchery of citizens was committed at Colfax, in which bloodthirstiness and barbarity is hardly surpassed by any acts of savage warfare. Insuperable obstructions were thrown in the way of punishing these murderers, and the so-called conservative papers of the state not only justified the massacre, but denounced as federal tyranny and despotism the attempt of the United States officers to bring them to justice. Concerning Mississippi, President Grant said, As to the state election of 1875, Mississippi is governed today by officials chosen through fraud and violence, such as would scarcely be accredited to savages. In 1874, the president was asked for federal troops in Mississippi and in South Carolina. The president refused to send extra troops, and the result was the Vicksburg riot in Mississippi, where many were killed. Afterward, troops were sent there. Oh, good. Afterward. That's that's good. That's useful. The best time. In 1876, he promised South Carolina every aid to secure the... He promised South Carolina every aid on account of the Hamburg riot. He tried in February 1875 to secure the passage of a bill to protect voters in United States elections, but it did not pass. Nevertheless, before the election of 1876, the House of Representatives asked him to enforce the remaining provisions of the Force Act with utmost vigor. Grant kept appealing to the Southern people to stop this situation of their own initiative and make the exercise of his power unnecessary. I wonder how that will work out for him. Hmm. The South did not listen. 
Rather, it took note of the strong liberal opposition to Grant in the North and counted on these liberals to favor withdrawal of that same position of the Southern labor, which in alliance with Northern businesses they had helped institute in 1867. On the other hand, the South sensed the willingness of big business Uh, Wow. Wow. My reading is not going to be good this time. Big business (laughs) threatened by liberal revolt, labor upheaval and state interference to make new alliance with organized Southern capital. If assured that the tariff banks and national debt and above all, the new freedom of the corporations would not be subjected to mass attack. Such a double bargain was more than agreeable to Southern leaders. During the last session of the 43rd Congress in 1875, another federal election bill, drawn so as to put Congress in control of the national elections, was introduced. The Speaker of the House, James G. Blaine, presented its, prevented its passage. He was candidate for the Republican nomination in 1876 and was afraid that the bill might defeat him. He told Lynch that the colored representative from Mississippi that the passage of the bill would defeat the Republican Party throughout the country. But he was confident, on the other hand, that if a solid South resulted from the failure to pass the bill, it would make a solid North in opposition. It did nothing of the sort. It did not prevent a South solidified by the determination to exploit disenfranchised Negroes. And it did leave a North hesitating between democracy with black voters and plutocracy with white supremacy. In South Carolina, the situation was a little more difficult for the mob because of the efforts at reform that were being made by the Republicans. Despite Chamberlain's administration and the efforts at reform, the Democrats determined to carry the election of 1876 by force. Hampton, shortly after the war, went to Mississippi to look after his large planting interests in the Yazoo Delta. He returned to South Carolina in 1876 at the earnest solicitation of Butler and Gary, former Confederate generals. Their plan of campaign was clear. Every Democrat must feel honor-bound to control the vote of at least one Negro by intimidation, purchase, keeping him away for or as each individual may determine how may best accomplish it. Jesus Christ. Never threaten a man individually. If he deserves to be threatened, the necessities of the times require that he should die. A dead radical is very harmless. A threatened radical or one driven off by the threats from the scene of his operations is very often troublesome, sometimes dangerous, always vindictive. David, take it away. This is making me sick. Yeah. In the month of September, we ought to begin to organize Negro clubs or pretend that we've organized them and write letters from different parts of the county, giving the facts of organization out from prudential reasons. The names of the Negroes are to be withheld. Those who join are are to be taken on probation and are not to be taken into full fellowship until they've proven their sincerity by voting our ticket. Riots and labor troubles ensued, addressing the Senate on August 1st, 1876, on the late disgraceful and brutal slaughter of unoffending men at the town of Hamburg, South Carolina. President Grant said murders and massacres of innocent men for opinion's sake or on account of color have been of too recent date and of too frequent occurrence to require recapitulation or testimony here. All are familiar with the horrible details, the only wonder being that so many justify them or apologize to them for them. The scene at Hamburg, he wrote to the governor of South Carolina, as cruel, bloodthirsty, wanton, unprovoked, and as uncalled for as it was, is only a repetition of the course that has been pursued in other states within the last few years, notably in Mississippi and Louisiana. In September, there was a race riot in Aiken County where an unknown number of Negroes were killed. Some said 15, some said 125. Federal troops intervened. No one ever knew how many were killed, but the best informed men estimate that between 80 and 125 lost their lives. In Charleston County, Negroes in October killed five white men and wounded 16 others. 
Meantime, deliberate fraud carried the election of 1876. There was cheating, intimidation, bribery, and repeating in voting, especially in Edgefield and Lawrence County. At Edgefield, several hundred armed men were ready to take possession of the courthouse, and Negroes were kept from voting. When a Negro leader with several hundred followers marched to the courthouse to vote, the white leader ordered his men to pack the steps and corridors so that the entrance would be impossible. When the Negroes protested to General Ruger, he asked Gary to let the Negroes vote. Gary refused and was reported to have replied, By God, sir, I'll not do it. I will keep the compact I made with you this morning, that white men and Negroes should vote at separate boxes. Gary's doctrine of voting early and often changed the Republican majority of 2,300 in Edgefield to a Democratic majority of 3,900, thus giving Hampton a claim to the office of governor. It was Edgefield's majority alone which gave to Hampton a chance to claim to have been elected, the opportunity which he utilized so well. It will be recalled that the tissue ballots were used in the heavy Negro counties for the purpose of having the white men devote several tickets at once by folding them all together in a way and have them drop apart in the boxes. The law provided on closing the polls that if there were more ballots found in the box than there were names on the poll list, the ballot should be returned to the box and one of the managers should draw out the excess to be destroyed. It is needless to say that the Democratic white manager did the drawing and the Negroes used to be very much surprised that he always drew a thick Republican ticket to be burned. We all went to each other's bonds, and it became a joke, causing great amusement that Creighton Matheny, who did not own $10 worth of property, had signed bonds to the extent of $20,000. In truth, the whole performance was perfunctionary, and in many respects a laughable travesty on law, for they had attempted to put us in jail, I am sure few or none of us would have acquiesced, and we would have probably killed every obnoxious radical in the courtroom and town and gone to Texas or some other hiding place. In an hour, we had departed and and gathering up our camp followers and were on our way home. Again, your enemies are ruthless bastards. Never underestimate them. Never capitulate with them. Never assume that mild formalities will defeat them. They do not care. In Lawrence County, the Democratic majority was 1,100 against a Republican majority of 1,000 in 1874. To catch the unwary Negro, the Democrats counterfeited the Union-Republican ticket in various ways. Some ballots were headed by the picture of Hayes and Wheeler, but carried the name of no presidential candidate. Instead, it carried the name of Hampton for governor, along with Republican county candidates. In this way, Wade Hampton became governor of South Carolina, but with the specific promise to protect Negro to his political rights. After 1877, the Southern gentleman made no attempt to keep the promise. Seventeen Republican representatives in the legislature from Charleston were expelled, and Democrats replaced them in special elections. Thereafter, all sorts of fraud and intimidation kept the South Carolina Negro from voting. A white South Carolinian who went through the period and was violently partisan says of the election of 1876, it is not now denied, but admitted and claimed by the successful party that the canvas was systematically conducted with the view to find occasions to apply force and violence. The occasions came and the methods adopted had their perfect work. The result is known, but must be stated here for historical purposes purely. By a system of violence and coercion ranging through all possible grades from urgent persuasion to mob violence, the election was won by Democrats. 
It has been charged by Rhodes and others that there was deliberate exaggeration and misrepresentation concerning these outbreaks and atrocities. This might have been true in some cases, but no one can read the mass testimony in the various congressional reports and other sources without being convinced of the organized disorder and conspiracy that accompanied this revolution. The majority report of the Ku Klux Committee says, Obedient citizens, they cannot be considered who, themselves complaining of bad laws, excuse or encourage the massed and armed mobs that override all laws. Brave and magnanimous enemies, even they cannot be reckoned, who permit the remnants of rebellious feeling, the antagonisms of race, or the bitterness of political partisanships, to degrade the soldiers of Lee and Johnston into the cowardly midnight prowlers and assassins who scourge and kill the poor and defenseless. I love holding up Lee as like some brave, brave, you know, standard bearer or something like that. And even the minority report admits we do not intend to deny that bodies of disguised men have in several states of the South been guilty of the most flagrant crimes. And the same minority report voices the object of the revolution. But whenever the party shall go down, as go down it will at some time, not long in the future, that will be the end of the political power of the Negro among white men on this continent. Men in the frenzy of political passions may shut their eyes to this fact now, but it will come at any time when the Negro shall cease to be a party necessity in the politics of this country. Thousands of Republicans even now hate him for his insolence and his arrogance in the ready self-assertion of his newfound rights and privileges. The truly sincere and rational humanitarian looks with sorrow upon the future status of the poor, deluded Negro. For in the near state of things which is to become, when the two great parties which now exist shall have passed away, he sees either the exodus or the extinction of this disturbing element in the social and political condition of the more powerful race. Systematic effort was made during the whole period of Reconstruction to prevent Negroes from bearing arms. First, there was the demand that Negro federal troops be immediately disbanded or removed from the South. Then, when the white militia searched Negro dwellings for arms and took them away. The white militia organizations in the opposite county of South Carolina, Edgefield, were engaged in disarming the Negroes. This created great discontent among the latter, and in some instances, they had offered resistance. In previous inspecting tours in South Carolina, much complaint reached me of the misconduct of these militia companies towards the blacks. Some of the latter of the most of intelligent and well-disposed came to me and said, what shall we do? These militia companies are heaping upon our people every sort of injury and insult unchecked. Our people are peaceably inclined, and we are endeavoring to inculcate good feeling, but we cannot bear this treatment much longer. Many are beginning to say, we have been patient long enough. We are free men now, and we have submitted to such usage as long as we can. And again, they ask, what shall we do? I assured them that this conduct was not sanctioned by the United States military authorities and that it would not be allowed. Well, we'll see how fucking good that works. Yeah. While the Negro was in power, most of South of the Southern states organized Negro militias. In South Carolina, 96,000 were thus nominally enrolled and others in Louisiana and Texas in the militia and in the police. Nevertheless, the Reconstruction governors were afraid to use these militia lest they start race war and the effort to arm and equip them efficiently was silently opposed. Usually it resulted that the disarmed and unsuspecting black people were set upon by white forces superior in number, armed and disciplined, and with little chance of self-defense. Meantime, a new power appeared upon the scene, or rather an old power of government paralyzed by the Civil War began to reassert itself and effectively stopped northern federal dictatorship to enforce democracy in the South. This was the Supreme Court. Oh, joy. 
oh, our bastion God. of good balls and strikes calling liberal minded good yeah. good fall oh, here we fucking go Johnson had no chance to make appointments to the Supreme Court, although he had long relied upon that court to overthrow Reconstruction. The court, however, hesitated before overwhelming public opinion. In 1870, Northern Big Business designated two railroad and corporation lawyers from Pennsylvania and New York for appointment. It was charged that they were purposely put on the bench in order to reverse the legal tender decision and protect the bondholders in collecting at par debts contracted when paper money was at a discount of 30 to 60 percent. At any rate, they together with one another with one other appointment made in 1872 to 74 changed the complexion of the Supreme Court. And when Waite was appointed Chief Justice over the protest of Charles Sumner, the reconstructed court was ready for the appeals concerning the laws to enforce the 14th and 15th Amendments. David. It is significant that the very center of northern capitalistic power, which protected and buttressed the new monopoly of big business, turned and with the same gesture freed land and capital in the South from any fear of control by black and white labor. Cases on appeal reached that tribunal in 1876. Reverdy Johnson, Henry Stanberry, and others had striven to bring this to pass. They relied upon the court to do what Democratic members of Congress had failed to accomplish, and the court, through a process of reasoning very similar to that of the Democratic legislatures, deprived the enforcement legislation of nearly all its strength when it rendered decisions in the U.S. cases of United States versus Reese and United States versus Cruikshank. Sure. Probably no Cruikshank. Uh, the 15th Amendment to the Constitution does not confer the right of suffrage the court precluded in the case. Remember, this is the balls and strikes calling court that appeals to the Constitution that they're saying the Constitution does not guarantee rights as the amendment of the Constitution says. Yeah, uh, the whole point of the amendment. What is the point of the 15th Amendment if it does not confer the right of suffrage? Right. Um, so back to the quote, uh, the power of Congress to legislate at all upon the subject of voting at state elections rests upon this amendment and can be exercised by providing a punishment only when the wrongful refusal to receive the vote of a qualified elector at such election is because his race, color or previous condition of servitude. So, again, this this sounds like, oh, I'm sorry, we use the plausible deniability thing. Right. Yeah. Uh, we can't fire you for being black or trans or gay. Right. But we can fire you for any reason, no reason at all. Yeah. 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 Um, that, that, except, you know, constitutionally with the right to vote. Um, in the Cruikshank case, the court declared that the right of suffrage is not a necessary attribute of national citizenship. Again, <laughs> this is the court that is supposed to hold up the Constitution. This is an amendment to the Constitution that explicitly names the right to vote. And they're like, you know, that doesn't really seem important. No. And there are so many cases, too, where, again, they uphold reactionary shit. And they're like, well, it's wrong. It makes no sense here. But technically, we got to follow the document. And now it's like, OK, the document technically says it, but we don't really like it. It's just it's a crock of shit. Okay, so anyway, uh, but that exemption from discrimination and the exercise of that right on account of race, etc., is the right to vote in the United States comes from the states, but the right of exemption from the prohibited discrimination comes from the United States. The first has not been granted or secured by the Constitution of the United States, but the last has been. 
The 14th Amendment prohibits a state from denying to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws, but this provision does not, any more than the one which preceded it, add anything to the rights which one citizen under the Constitution against another. The equality of the rights of the citizens is a principle of republicanism. Every republican government is in duty bound to protect all its citizens in the enjoyment of this privilege if, if within its power. That duty was originally assumed by the state, and it still remains there. The only obligation resting upon the United States is to see that the states do not deny the right. This the amendment guarantees. Oh. But no more. But no more. Sorry, my, my screen's going wonky here. You're fine. Um, the power of the national government is limited to the enforcement of the rights guaranteed. Thank you. Both okay. the 14th and 15th Amendments were thus made innocuous so far as the Negro was concerned. And the 14th Amendment in particular became the chief refuge and bulwark of corporations. It was thus that finance and the power of wealth accomplished through the Supreme Court what it had not been able to do successfully through Congress. Oh, surprise. Citizens mm-hmm. United. Uh, in 1876 came the bargain between big business and the South. At first, there was a, the attempt at direct bribery in Louisiana, Florida, and South Carolina. In one case, in one state, a majority of the board was said to have been secured if Tilden would pay 80000 But this was rather too crude and direct. The work of Mr. Charles Foster, representative from the district of Rutherford Hayes in Ohio, was much more subtle and certain. Mr. Charles Foster, representative from Hayes' own district, stated in a speech in the Louisiana debate that it would be the policy of Mr. Hayes, if inaugurated, to wipe out sectional lines that under him the flag should wave over states, not provinces, over freemen, not subjects. Negotiations were entered into and conferences held. On the 26th of February, 1876, there were three conferences. The outcome was an agreement. The Republicans guaranteed that Mr. Hayes, when he became president, would by non-interference and the withdrawal of troops allow the planter capitalists under the name of Democrats to control South Carolina and Louisiana. They also agreed to induce President Grant to adopt the same policy before the end of his term. This meant that Southern landholders and capitalists would be put in complete control of disenfranchised black labor. The Democrats promised to guarantee peace, good order, protection of the law to whites and blacks, or in other words, exploitation should be so quiet, orderly, and legal as to assure regular profit to Southern owners and Northern investors. This bargain was so raw and obvious that it must not yet be submitted to public opinion. In order, therefore, to avoid bringing up the issue in the United States Senate before the cabinet was confirmed and perhaps preventing the confirmation of persons favorable to this Southern policy, the Democrats agreed not to elect the long-term senator until March 10th. Other details were arranged next day. The Democratic assurances were ratified by Governor Nicholas Nichols of Louisiana, and a copy was sent north. Louisiana was told that Grant had promised that as soon as the court should be completed to rescind or modify all orders, all orders to enforce the laws in the South. Foster sent an unsigned draft of a letter to Brown and to Senator Gordon. The Democrats thought the letter might be fuller and stronger, but agreed to it. An hour later, the same letter was received from Foster. The Democratic legislature, protected by armed members of the White League, declared Nichols governor. He was eventually recognized by the president, and Louisiana became Democratic. Federal troops were withdrawn under Hayes. The force behind the dictatorship of labor in the South disappeared. The last act was to appoint a Kentuckian and a Georgian to the Supreme Court. The deed was done. Negroes did not surrender the ballot easily or immediately. They continued to hold remnants of political power in South Carolina, Florida, Louisiana, and parts of North Carolina. 
in Texas, Tennessee, and Virginia, black congressmen came out of the South until 1895, and black legislators served as late as 1896. But it was a losing battle. With public opinion, industry, wealth, and religion against them, their own leaders decried politics and preached submission. All their efforts toward manly self-assertion were distracted and defeat by defeatism and counsels of despair backed by the powerful propaganda of a religion which taught meekness, sacrifice, and humility. But the decisive influence was the systematic and overwhelming economic pressure Negroes who wanted work must not dabble in politics. Negroes who wanted to increase their income must not agitate the Negro problem. Positions of influence were open to those Negroes who were certified as being safe and sane, and their careers were closely scrutinized and passed upon. From 1880 onward, in order to earn a living in America, the Negro was compelled to give up his political power. There was an old remedy. No, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I mean, that it's just such an ugly way to, to rob power away, right? Like, oh, yeah, you know, you can do for yourself, but you have to capitulate. And... Mm-hmm. Within that community, you know, the, those people should be known as backstabbers and sellouts and, and things like that. But also from the outside judging in, whether it's from the future or, you know, whether it's in the time and you're not in that group or, or whatever it is, that's an awfully harsh judgment for a situation that that kind of unfair all around, you know. But again, far more unfair <laughs> to the great the great victims that, that didn't do that. Yeah. Um but that's what always happens, right? I mean, you just select a, a select few out of out of the group and raise them up if they capitulate. Yep. Um, there was an old remedy known since the 18th century, the colonization movement, which had resulted in Liberia. In the first Negro convention held in Philadelphia in 1833, migration to Canada was discussed and recommended, and large numbers went there. In 1853, a convention at Rochester opposed emigration, but seceders called another convention, and this convention set emissaries to Haiti, Africa, and Central America. As a result, some 2,000 Negroes went to Haiti. The war stopped thoughts of emigration, except as Lincoln proposed it. After 1876, movements arose simultaneously in several states. The first conspicuous leader was Benjamin Singleton, a Negro undertaker in Tennessee, who took two colonies of 7,400 Negroes to Kansas. Henry Adams started an even greater movement in Louisiana, sending organizers to each state in the South. It claimed by 1879, 92,800 members in Louisiana, Texas, Arkansas, Mississippi, and Alabama. Altogether, about 60,000 Negroes went to Kansas, two-thirds of whom were destitute when they arrived. Slow individual movements of Negroes from the South to the North kept up, but there were no further mass movements until the World War. Indeed, the whole matter of migration to escape the new regime in South Carolina in the South was complicated by the attitude of the North. Few Northern communities wanted Negro immigrants and labor organizations opposed them so that it was difficult to get work outside the United States. Growing imperialism and the treatment of Liberia, Haiti and other small colored countries made emigration less attractive. And the United States government, by permitting the spreading of unfavorable reports and putting difficulties in the way of Negro travelers has made colored migration to the West Indies and South America difficult. Even to this day, the situation settled down to a new system and a new outlook in the South. The whole history of this post-reconstruction development is yet to be written, but a few words concerning it may close this chapter. First, there was a systematic disenfranchisement of the Negro. 
He was kept from voting by force, by economic intimidation, by propaganda designed to lead him to believe that there was no salvation for him in political lines, but that he must depend entirely upon thrift and the goodwill of his white employers. Then came the series of disenfranchisement laws, discriminating against poverty and ignorance, and aimed at the situation of the colored laborer. While the white laborer escaped by deliberate conniving and throughout the understanding and grandfather clauses. To make assurance doubly sure, the white primary system was built on top of this, by which the Democratic Party confined its membership to white voters of all parties. The white primary was made law was made by law and public pressure the real voting arena to practically all southern states. This brings us to the situation when Booker T. Washington became the leader of the Negro race and advised them to depend on industrial education and work rather than politics. The better class of Southern Negroes stopped voting for a generation. Then, with the shift of population toward the North, there comes the present situation out of which 12 million Negroes, 3 million are in the North, and 9 million are in the South. Those in the North and in border states vote. Those in the South are seriously restricted in their voting, and this restriction means that their political power is exercised by the White South, which gives the White South an extraordinary political influence as compared to the voters of the North and East. Again, things we still see today. We talk about it all the time. When you bash the South, you're bashing the majority of the black population who are trapped in poverty and Republican policies uh, by that poverty and by this situation. And this is the historic undergirding of that. Yeah. Um, The disenfranchisement of Negroes in the South became nearly complete in no other civilized and modern land has so great a group of people, most of whom were able to read and write, but allowed so small a voice in their own government. Every promise of eventual recognition of the intelligent Negro voter has been broken. In the former slave states, from Virginia to Texas, excepting Missouri, there are no Negro state officials, no Negro members of legislatures, no judges on the bench, and usually no jurors. There are no colored county officials of any sort in the towns and cities. There are no colored administrative officers, no members of city councils, no magistrates, no constables, and very seldom even a policeman. In this way, at least 8 million Negroes are left without effective voice in government, naked to the worst elements of the community. Now, again, Bois, Du Bois is a brilliant materialist and, and you know educated communist by this point. But we know some things now that he does not just from observation. Uh, representation in the police force did not solve this problem. But even today, right, we're still talking about like the police force could be majority black. It would still be just as oppressive and white supremacist. But we also know the numbers are still overwhelmingly white. Yeah. Um, Beyond this cast has been revived in a modern civilized land. It was supposed to be a relic of barbarism and ex- existent only in Asia. <laughs> the, du Bois kind of doing the does an American thing very Americanly. What are we, a bunch of Asians? Exactly. But it has grown up and been carefully nurtured and put on a legal basis with religious and moral sanctions in the South. First, it was presented and defended as a race separation, but it was never mere race separation. It was always domination of blacks by white officials with white police and laws and ordinances made by white men. The schools were separate, but the colored schools were controlled by white officials who decided how much or rather how little should be spent upon them. Who decided what should be taught and what textbooks to use and what sort of subservient teachers they wanted? 
In travel, separation compelled colored passengers to pay first-class fare for second- or third-class accommodations and to endure on streetcars and trains discrimination of all sorts. Ghettos were built up in nearly all southern cities, not always sharply defined, but pretty definite. And in these, Negroes must live. And in them, white vice and crime might find shelter and Negro delinquency go unpoliced. Little attention was paid to lighting, sewerage, and paving in these quarters. Besides this, a determined psychology of caste was built up. In every possible way, it was impressed and advertised that the white was superior and the Negro an inferior race. This inferiority must be publicly acknowledged and submitted to. Titles of courtesy were denied colored men and women. Certain signs of servility and usages amounting to public and personal insult were insisted upon. The most educated and deserving black men was compelled in many public places to occupy a place beneath the lowest and least deserving of the whites. Public institutions like parks and libraries either denied all accommodations to blacks or gave them inferior facilities. A distinguished white Southerner said in 1885, Is the freedman a free man? No. We have considered his position in a land whence nothing can and no man has a shadow of a right to drive him, and where he is being multiplied as only oppression can multiply a people. We have carefully analyzed his relations to the finer and prouder race, which he shares the ownership and citizenship of a region large enough for ten times the number of people. Without accepting one word of his testimony, we have shown that the laws made for his protection against the habits of suspicion and oppression in this late master are being constantly set aside, not for their defects, but for such merit as they possess. We have shown that the very natural source of these oppressions is the surviving sentiment of an extinct, now universally extricated institution, sentiments which no intelligent or moral people should harbor a moment after the admission that slavery was a moral mistake. We have shown the outrageousness of these tyrannies and some of their workings and how distinctly they antagonize every state and national interest involved in the elevation of the colored race. It is not well to have done so. For I say again, the question has reached a moment of special importance. The South stands on her honor before the clean equities of the issue. It is no longer whether constitutional amendments, but whether the eternal principles of justice are violated. With this went widespread and determined exploitation of black labor. And of course, above all, taxation without representation. Taxation fell crushingly upon the poor, so that the proportion of taxes which the black laborer paid according to income was much larger than that borne by the rich whites or even the laboring whites. The Negro had no voice concerning this taxation, whether in the state, county, city, town, or district administration. He had little redress in the courts. The judges of the upper courts were usually selected from the better class of men whose fairness could be depended upon so far as public opinion and their own sympathy with white exploiters would admit. But the police, courts, and magistrates' courts were in the hands of a wretched set of white Negro-hating politicians, and nine-tenths of the Negro court cases ended here and filled the chain gangs with Negroes. It was the policy of the state to keep the Negro laborer poor, to confine him as far as possible to menial occupations, to make him a surplus labor reservoir, and to force him into peonage and unpaid toil. In a report by the Honorable Charles W. Russell, Assistant Attorney General to the Attorney General in 1908, appears this language. I have no doubt from my investigations and experiences that the chief support of peonage is this particular system of state laws prevailing in the South, intended evidently to compel services on the part of the working man. From the unusual condition of the great mass of laboring men where these laws are enforced, to peonage is but a step at most. 
In fact, it is difficult to draw a distinction between the condition of a man who remains in service against his will because the state has passed a certain law under which he can be arrested and returned to work, and the condition of a man on a nearby farm who is actually made to stay at work by arrest and actual threats of force under the same law. David? Yeah, and again, I mean, you have this, it's clear, right? Like, what is the difference between someone who, by law, is bound to work or will be captured and sent back to work and a slave? Yeah, nothing. What is the difference? Uh, The editor of the Macon, Georgia Telegraph said recently, since at least 1865, we have been holding back the Negro to keep him from getting beyond the white man. Our idea has been that the Negro should be kept poor, but by keeping him poor, we have thrown him into competition with ourselves and have kept ourselves poor. Of course, Governor Talmadge has the popular attitude. It is to hold the Negro down in order to make him work, to keep him poor. As Southerners are willing to keep themselves and their kind and and sectioned down and poor in order to keep the Negro that way. To make this policy effective, it is necessary to keep the Negro ignorant and disorganized. Here, however, there were some difficulties. The Negro had higher schools, supported by largely northern philanthropy. They were turning out small, but increasing numbers of educated men. There were, therefore, larger and larger numbers of trained teachers available for the public schools. The North was not disposed at this time to defend universal suffrage or even democracy, but it did still believe in intelligence, so that the Negro public schools had to be kept open, and at the same time, the private schools, which were furnishing teachers and leaders, were depending not on state aid, but Northern philanthropy. This meant that a large and influential section of the North had direct contact and knowledge of the educated Negro. For a long time, they defended the Negro College and normal school from all assaults. Indeed, it was not until the 90s that they organized property in the North, uniting with Southern propaganda for Negro industrial education, made an assault upon the Negro College that almost overthrew it. But that is another story. There were nevertheless numberless ways in which Negro public schools could be and were decreased in efficiency. In the first place, the public school funds were distributed with open and unashamed discrimination. Anywhere from twice to ten times as much was spent on the white child as the Negro child. Even then, the poor white child did not receive an adequate education. In the black belt, particularly large amounts of funds were drawn by county uh, or by county officers because of the black population and distributed among the whites to the extent of sending some to college. The Negro schools were given few buildings and little equipment. No effort was made to compel Negro children to go to school. On the contrary, in the country, they were deliberately kept out of school by the requirements of contract labor, which embraced the labor of wife and children as well as the laborer himself. Again, how is this any different than slavery? Yeah. Um, The course of study was limited. The school term was made and kept short, and in many cases, there was the deliberate effort expressed by one leading Southerner, Hoke Smith, then two Negro teachers applied for the school to take less to take the less competent supervising officers paid little or no attention to Negro schools and the education of the Negro for many years after the overthrow of reconstruction proceeded in spite of their school system, not because of it. An attempt was made through advocacy of so-called industrial education to divert the Negro schools from training and knowledge to training in crafts and industry. But here the white laborers North and South objected and practically no effective industrial training was ever given in the Southern public schools, except training for cooking and menial service. Sickness, disease, and death have been the widespread physical results of caste. The sick have had wretched care. Public hospitals supported by public funds turned Negroes 
public hospital supported by public funds. What? <laughs> public hospitals supported by public funds turn Negroes away or segregate and neglect them in cellars and the annexes. White physicians often despise their Negro clientele and colored physicians crowd into the larger towns and cities to escape the insult and insecurity to which the colored professional man is exposed in the country and smaller towns. Above all, crime was used in the South as a source of income for the state. Again, things never change. Change. Uh, an English traveler wrote in 1871, I confess I am more and more suspicious about the criminal justice of the southern states. In Georgia, there is no regular penitentiary at all, but an organized system of letting out the prisoners for profit. Some people here have got up company for the purpose of hiring convicts. They pay $25,000 a year besides all expenses of food and keep so that their money is clear profit to the state. The leasees work for the prisoners both on the estates and in mines and apparently maintain severe discipline in their own way and make a good thing of it. Colonel P, it just says the letter P in some lines, who is not very mealy-mouthed, admits that he left the concerned left the concern because he could not stand the inhumanity of it. Another partner in the concern talked with great glee of the money he had made out of the convicts. This does seem simply a return to another form of slavery. Which we have talked about ad nauseum, that mm-hmm. that is what the prison system is. That is what the, the modern carceral system was, was Absolutely. a response to, oh, we can't have legal slavery. Well, how are we going to do that? Oh, uh, yeah, let's just do it this way. Capital C criminal, bang, your slave again. Yep. In no part of the modern world has there been so open and conscious a trafficking crime for deliberate social degradation and private profit as in the South since slavery. The Negro is not antisocial. He is no natural criminal. Crime of the vicious type outside endeavor to achieve freedom or in revenge for cruelty was rare in the slave South. Since 1876, Negroes have been arrested on the slightest provocation and given long sentences or fines which they were compelled to work out. The resulting peonage of criminals extended into every southern state and led the most revolting situations oh god a southern white woman writes Mm -hmm. in some states where convict labor is sold to the highest bidder the true treatment of the helpless human chattel in the hands of the guards is such as no tongue can tell nor pen picture prison inspectors find convicts herded together in irrespective of age confined at night in shackles housed sometimes, as has been found in old boxcars, packed almost as closely as sardines in a box. During the day, all will, all are worked under armed guards who stand ready to shoot down any who may attempt to escape from this hell upon earth. The modern American Bastille, should one escape, the bloodhounds, trained for the purpose, are put upon his track, and the chances are that he will be brought back, severely flogged, and put in double shackles or worse. Of all the degrading positions to our mind, that of the whipping boss in the Georgia penitentiary system is the worst. He stands over his peonied victim and applies the lash on the naked, quivering flesh of a fellow man, plies it hard enough to lacerate the flesh and send the blood coursing down the bruised back and sides from the gaping and whipcord cuts. And just think of the mercilessness, the inhumanity, the beast bestiality of the sentiment that can drive the lash deeper and deeper through the cuts and gashes on the body of a human being, white or black, just as a cool calculating business for a very, it's the wrong version of that, of the N word, but it's, it's the acceptable, the so-called acceptable version, but we're not using it. N word, a very hard N word stipend. Uh, Hundreds of Southern fortunes have been amassed by this enslavement of criminals. 
George W. Cable protested in 1883 and wrote, if anything may be inferred from the moral mortal results of the lease system in other states, the year's death rate of the convict camps of Louisiana must exceed that of any pestilence that ever fell upon Europe in the Middle Ages. And as far as popular rumor goes, it confirms this assumption on every hand. Every mention of these camps is followed by the excretions of a scandalized community whose ear is every now and then shocked afresh with some new whisper of their frightful barbarities. It is for the present writer to assert that every other community where the leasing of convicts prevails is moved to indignation by the same sense of outrage and disgrace. Yet it certainly would be a charitable assumption to believe that the day is not remote in which, when in which every region the sentiment of the people's will right over the gates of the convict stockades and over the doors of the lessees. Sumptuous homes, one word, acladema, a field of blood. The normal account of crime, which an ignorant working population would have evolved, has tremendously increased. Young criminals and vagrants were deliberately multiplied, and this in turn made an excuse for mob law and lynching. Colored women were looked upon as legitimate prey of white men, and protection for them, even against the colored men, was seldom furnished. While all instruments of group control, police, courts, governments, appropriations, and the like, were in the hands of whites, no power was left in Negro hands. If a white man is assaulted by a white man or a Negro, the police are at hand. If a Negro is assaulted by a white man, the police are more apt to arrest the victim than the aggressor. If he is assaulted by a Negro, he is in most cases without redress or protection, and the group will of the colored man has no power to express itself. Interracial sex jealousy and accompanying sadism has been made the wide foundation of mobs and lynching. With thousands of white fathers of colored children, there is scarcely a case on record where such a father has been held legally responsible. Such evils led to widespread violence in the South, to murder and mobs. Probably in no country in the civilized world did human life become so cheap. This condition prevails among both white and black and characterizes the South even to our day. A spirit of lawlessness became widespread. White people paid no attention to their own laws. White men became a law. Uh, white men became a law unto themselves, and black men, so far as their aggressions were confined to their own people, need not fear intervention of white police. Practically all men went armed, and the South reached the extraordinary distinction of being the only modern civilized country where human beings were publicly burned alive. Southern papers specialized on Negro crime with ridicule and coarse caricature. Whoa, why did I, I just lost that sentence? The police court where hearts bled was a matter of hilarious newspaper laughter, while a note of decency and success among Negroes was buried on a back page or ignored entirely. The political success of the doctrine of racial separation, which overthrew Reconstruction by uniting the planter and poor white, was far exceeded by its astonishing economic results. The theory of laboring class unity rests upon the assumption that laborers, despite internal jealousies, will unite because of their oppression to ex opposition to exploitation by the capitalists. According to this, even after a part of poor white laboring class became identified with the planters and eventually displaced them, their interests would be diametrically opposed to those of the mass of white labor and, of course, to those of the black laborers. This would throw white and black labor into one class and precipitously precipitated a united fight for higher wage and better working conditions. David. Most persons do not realize how far this failed to work in the 
South, and it failed to work because the theory of race was supplemented by a carefully planned and slowly evolved method, which drove such a wedge between the white and black workers that there probably are not today in the world two groups of workers with practically identical interests who hate and fear each other so deeply and persistently and who are kept so far apart that neither sees anything of common interest. It must be remembered that the white group of laborers, while they received low wage, were compensated in part by a sort of public and psychological wage. They were given public deference and titles of courtesy because they were white. They were admitted freely with all classes of white people to public functions, public parks, and the best schools. The police were drawn for their ranks and the courts depended upon their votes, treated them with leniency as to encourage lawlessness. Their vote selected public officials, and while this had small effect upon the economic situation, it had great effect upon their personal treatment and the difference shown them. White schoolhouses were the best in the community and conspicuously placed, and they had cost anywhere from twice to ten times as much per capita as the colored schools. The newspapers specialized no news that flattered the poor whites and almost utterly ignored the Negro except in crime and ridicule. On the other hand, in the same way, the Negro was subject to public insult, was afraid of mobs, was liable to the jibes of children and the unreasoning fears of white women, and was compelled almost con- continuously to submit to various badges of inferiority. The result of this was that the wages of both classes could be kept low, the whites fearing to be supplanted by Negro labor, the Negroes always being threatened by the situ- substitution of white labor. Mob violence and lynching were the inevitable result of the attitude of these two classes and for a time were a sort of permissible Roman holiday for the entertainment of vicious whites. One can see for these reasons why labor organizers and labor agitators made such a small headway in the South. They were, for the most part, appealing to laborers who would rather have low wages upon which they could eke out an existence than see colored labor with a decent wage. White labor saw in every advance of Negroes a threat to their racial prerogatives, so in many districts, Negroes were afraid to build decent homes or dress well or own carriages, bicycles, and automobiles because of the possible retaliation on the part of the whites. Thus, every problem of labor advanced in the South was skillfully turned by demagogues into a matter of interracial jealousy. Perhaps the most conspicuous proof of this was the Atlanta riot of 1906, which followed Hoke Smith's vicious attempt to become United States Senator on a platform which first attacked corporations and then was suddenly twisted into scandalous traducing of the Negro race. Again, this laid the foundation for fascism. Yes. Um, To this day, no casual and unsophisticated reader of the white Southern press could possibly gather that the American Negro masses were anything but degraded, ignorant, inefficient examples of an incurably inferior race. The result of all this had to be unfortunate for the Negro. He was a caged human being driven into a curious mental provincialism. An inferiority complex dominated him. He did not believe himself a man like other men. He did not teach his children self-respect. The Negro, as a group, gradually lost his manners, his courtesy, his light-hearted kindliness. Large numbers sank into apathy and fatalism. There was no chance for the black man. There was no use in striving. Ambition was not for the Negroes. The effect of caste on the moral integrity of the Negro race in America has thus been widely disastrous. Servility and fawning, gross flattery of white folk, and lying to appease and cajole them. 
failure to achieve dignity and self-respect and moral assertion, personal cowardliness and submission to insult and aggression, exaggerated and despicable humility, like a faith of Negroes in themselves and in other Negroes and in all colored folk, inordinate admiration for the stigmata of success among white folk, wealth and arrogance, cunning dishonesty and assumptions of superiority, the exaltations of laziness and indifference as just as successful as the industry and striving, which invites taxation and oppression, dull apathy and cynicism, faith in no future and the habit of moving and wandering in search of justice, a religion of prayer and submission to replace determination and effort. These are not universal results or else the Negro long since would have dwindled and died in crime and disease, but they are so widespread as to bring inner conflict as baffling as the problems in of interracial relations, and they hold back the moral grit and organized effort, which are the only hope of survival. On this, and in spite of this, comes an extraordinary record of accomplishment, a record so contradictory of what one might easily expect that many people, and not even the Negroes themselves, are deceived by it. The real question is not so much as what the Negro has done in spite of caste, as what he might have accomplished with reasonable encouragement. He has cut down his illiteracy more than two-thirds in 50 years, but with decent schools, it ought to have been cut down 99%. He has accumulated land and property, but has not been able to hold one-tenth of that which he has rightly earned. He has achieved success in many lines as an inventor, scientist, scholar, and writer, but all, most of his ability has been choked in chain gangs and by open deliberate discrimination and conspiracies of silence. He has made a place for himself in literature and art, but the great deeps of his artistic gifts have not never yet been plumbed. And yet for all that, he has accomplished not only the nation, but the South itself claims credit and actually points to it as proof of the wisdom or at least the innocuousness of organized suppression. It is but human experience to find that the oh, and there, there's a contradiction there too, right? Like all these things black people have accomplished in spite of this oppression. And it comes out of this excuse where it's it's damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? If you yeah. don't succeed, it's, oh, it's your own fault. You're inferior. You've been freed, right? In this case, they did succeed and they did so in spite of ungodly godly conditions and what that means is oh you're overstating ungodly conditions look look how well so many of you have done yeah it's it's literally an an unwinnable situation yeah um that being said that is where we are going to end it for this week uh we will be finishing this chapter next time uh and we are we are in the final march gang we are in the final the final beats the we are a couple episodes away from finishing this uh we will be finished in the month of october uh very likely by october 13th if I, my math is serving me correctly uh but we will we will see uh but we will be finishing this chapter one way or another we will be finishing this book one way or another in the month of october uh hopefully mid-october as we go uh that being said, this has been Mark's Madness Pod. If you wanted to reach out to us, there are a number of different ways you can do that. Uh, the first of which is through email, marksmadnesspod at gmail.com. The next of which would be to hit us up on Twitter. We're at Mark's Madness Pod on Twitter. 
Uh, last but not least, you can join our community on Discord, where we hang out and talk to other people and play Final Fantasy fourteen and all the other fun things that go on in Discord. Uh, it, it is it is fun times. There is Book Club is still working through Caliban and the Witch within Discord. So if you have interest in that book, they are discussing that weekly on Fridays uh, over in Discord. Uh, that being said, David, I believe it is time for a disclaimer. Uh, yeah. So obviously this is a podcast that Nathan and I started because these are works that you want to be reading in a group. You want to make sure you get the most out of it, either to fully understand the history, to fully understand the theory or to understand what it means to you and how it ties back to you, uh, and what you need to do with it. And so Nathan asked me to read Capital with him and it was like, okay, great. That's a good choice. We'll read Capital together. And then we decided, you know what, we'll record it. We're only two people. It's kind of a small reading group. We know how to put out a podcast. We'll see if it's good. And maybe one day we'll put it out there. And lo and behold, we did. And ever since that happened, our vision has always been, hopefully you're out there in some kind of party, some kind of uh, group where you're uh, doing on the ground work, on the ground praxis. And your reading group, your political education group from that is reading this work. And we can be another voice, another uh, point of context of understanding in that group. Um, let's say your group isn't necessarily doing that, but they're doing, you know, a work more applicable to them, to, to what you're organizing around, and you're reading this on your own. Um, hopefully we can be that reading group then. We can be that discussion group. We can be that political education group and make sure you get out of these works what you need. And let's say, you know, instead of that, uh, we're either, you know, bringing this to you kind of in this enhanced ebook form where we're reading every word uh, or we're summarizing these works for you. That way you can get them, whatever we can do to make these works more accessible to you because we want these works out there guiding your actions. And when theory develops into actions, into mutual aid efforts, into, you know, any, anything that drives revolution based on theory um, that's called praxis and praxis cannot exist without theory. It only exists when theory is guiding it and theory is completely useless without the praxis they go hand in hand they are tied at the hip amen as always that being said this has been mark's madness pod we read books my name is nathan my name's david and we will talk to you all next week bye, bye.